had that sort of young adulthood crisis of faith that so many of us experience. Um, and you know, the stories you, mem- you, you memorize as a child and sing about as a child, like Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. Yeah, it's like, the, Joshua the and the Battle of Jericho. Then it's like, and then genocide happened right after. You know, it's just like, and then every man, woman, and child are killed in the city. Uh, you know, th- those sort of things just started bothering me even more and more and more. I couldn't just make sense of them. And you know, inevitably, people always when they hear that you're having these questions, they try to solve them. Sure. And that always made it worse for me because I felt <laughs> like they were like minimizing uh, the seriousness of the questions I was raising. You know, and as a woman reading the script, these passages where women are considered property and considered spoils of war, where Jephthah's daughter is, you know, sacrificed to yep, God because yep. God gave Jephthah victory in battle. You know, those, those things really, really troubled me. But what troubled me more was the callousness that mm-hmm. I experienced when I would ask people about this. Oh, yeah. It was kind of like, well, if you had more faith, this wouldn't bother you. And I was like, well, God save me from a day when genocide doesn't bother me, no matter where Amen. I encounter that, even if it's in my sacred text. Um, but it was almost like the measure of faith was in how stoic you were in your acceptance of this. Uh, and so that actually made it worse. Uh, that made me more concerned that maybe I'm just, you know, part of um, a faith that teaches violence and, and justifies violence, and, and there's no answer to this. Welcome to the Doxa Dialogue, a podcast about living life on mission for the glory of God. My name is David Rudy, and I am the pastor at Doxa Church. I'm starting a new series in the book of Judges. This upcoming Sunday, I'm very excited about it. And as I was preparing, I was just like, oh my word, there is a lot of heavy stuff in here. There's a lot of questions, a lot of doubts that people have when it comes to a book like Judges. And so to really get ahead of all of those questions, all of those doubts, all of those concerns that we have, I thought I would do a podcast specifically about some of these hard passages that we're going to be coming across. So you just listened to Rachel Held Ovens. More about her later. But what do you do when you feel things like that, when you think things like you just heard? That's where we're going with all of this today. And that's one of the biggest problems people have with the Bible today, particularly the Old Testament. And it's specifically right here in Joshua and Judges, and it's God's order to Israel that they drive out and evict the inhabitants of Canaan from their homeland, conquer the land, and take it for themselves. Here we have the nation of God's people doing something that today would seemingly be universally condemned. This has been called ethnic cleansing, and it's even been called genocide. You just heard the self-proclaimed Christian teacher, the late Rachel Held Evans, call it that. Or to use the term that's all the rage today, some would even call it colonization, which granted is such a 2022 thing to say, but that's where we're at. And this command to drive out all the Canaanites, the violence in Judges, to our modern ear, seems very far from the God who we know and love. God the Father who gave his son. God the Son who willingly sacrificed himself for us on the cross. And this, of course, 
brings to mind things like the Crusades that are universally looked down upon now as a time where Christians did horrific things under the banner of Christ. Our secular society has had a heyday attacking Christianity through the Crusades and through the expulsion of the Canaanites. And even quote-unquote progressive Christians have used the Crusades and the violence and judges to slowly chip away at and water down the authority of God's word with their self-centered doubts and questions with no answers. So what do we do with all of this? Well, here's the roadmap that I want to take you on for this episode. First of all, I want to give you a couple of false solutions. Then I want to teach through what was really going on in this situation. And finally, conclude with some practical implications on how to deal with today's skeptics who mock and attack our faith and even personalizing this what can we learn from the passage itself so first here's a false solution and that is to quickly and strongly oppose even the thought of the question There's a school of thought in Christianity that says you have to take the Bible literally and at face value and just accept it, even if you don't understand it at all. Don't ask questions. Just nod your head and go along with it, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Basically, just shut your mouth and think about something else. I'm over-exaggerating this position a little, but that's more or less what it boils down to. This is the don't think and don't ask method that never solves problems it only pushes them off and it builds doubt this is a huge disservice to people in the end because it pushes them away from faith and it misses the teaching opportunity that is always there in difficult passages so that's more general the second false solution takes this concept a step further And here's a specific example of what I'm talking about. You could see the violence in Judges and just answer it like this. Look, the Old Testament was a more primitive world. Mankind was more savage and harsh, and it's reflected in the Old Testament. What sounds barbaric to us was just the way mankind functioned in this era. Ever heard that? And all of that is partially true, just downplaying the situation because of society doesn't cut it either. The problem is this seemingly breaks the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. And in some people's limited perception, maybe even breaks the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. So here's where I want to get just a tad heady for a second, and I want to show you how some really good Bible teachers take the objection and they offer a false solution. Now, it's pretty good, so hang on tight and listen closely, but I don't think it's the best. Nevertheless, here it is. If you are so upset about the immorality of this, where do you get your morality from anyway? The Ten Commandments are in the Old Testament, So if we reject the Old Testament as God's true revelation, then on what basis do we object to the immorality of this conquest? If the Old Testament is not God's infallible word, 
then who's to say that Exodus 20 is good and Judges 1 is bad? And to deny the authority of the Old Testament in order to quote-unquote solve this issue is like burning down your whole house because you don't like cockroaches. If the Bible isn't God's word, then we must find a totally different basis for what is right and wrong. And you can't use the Ten Commandments as a basis of morality if that's the position you're taking. And if that's your stance, then let's go one step further. What's so wrong with a little imperialism anyway? Who's to say that you can't have your truth and I can't have mine? Now that's a pretty good argument, is it not? There's a lot of logic there. But I still hold that that's not your strongest argument And even though it is true, it's a false solution because the real problem is that God allows the Israelites to do in Joshua and Judges what he forbids anyone else to do throughout the rest of the Bible. The moral law of God as laid out in the Old and New Testaments is completely against conquest. When we kill people who have not attacked us and take their land any other time, it's considered theft or plunder or murder. And... What is really going on here? The above that I just worked through is a good solution for some people. It's a very good start for the left-brainers, the logically inclined people. But it's still not enough for those of us who are tapped more into our right brain or our feelings. So that's why I'm putting this here as a false solution because there is even more to it. That's definitely a part of it. It's just not the whole story. You can take a deep breath now. Maybe you can't, though. Maybe you're just like more concerned now than you were before the start of this podcast. (laughs) Now I'm ready to teach through the dilemma. Let's see what God was really doing in this time of history. First of all, this isn't what it may appear to look like on surface level. This was not about race or ethnicity. This was about the judgment of God on evil, and that is a very important distinction. When the invasion of Canaan began, Israel's spies were helped by Rahab the prostitute, a resident of Jericho. And when she trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, she became part of God's people, and she stayed in Canaan, a.k.a. the promised land, with God's people. The purpose of that mission was to break down the altars to the idols and evict the pagan worship. It wasn't about people's ethnicity at all. Secondly, the cleansing is not carried out on the basis of imperialistic expansion. Even with this special mandate, God does not allow the Israelites to plunder or enslave any of the people with whom they're driving out. As a matter of fact, you even see this in the story of Achan, who did take some of the nice clothes and some of the wealth, and he hid it in his tent. Remember that story? God judges him and his family and the entire nation in the next battle because he directly disobeyed God. The Israelites were not plundering anything. They were to drive out the people, and if they refused, they were to destroy them. But they had specific orders not to keep anything. 
So what would have been normal for any military throughout the annals of time was completely forbidden because the purpose of the mission was not to become rich and powerful, but rather to create a country in which God's people could live and serve and honor God freely. Number three, this was divine judgment, not genocide. Very important. These inhabitants were utterly and completely corrupt and unredeemable in God's eyes. And God was using his people to judge their wickedness by driving them out of the land. All the way back in Genesis 15, when God promises this land to Abraham, he says, the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That time had come now, and God knew the heart of these people. God knows who will repent and who will not. He is beyond us. So we have to remember in passages like this to approach them with humility. If we don't understand something, we have to remember that we have a limited view. God knows all. And we tend to come to things in the Bible and contextualize them. Like, what would I do in this situation based off of my perceptions of my perspectives of the world? God knows all, and his ways are higher than my ways, and his thoughts higher than my thoughts, as Isaiah tells us. One of the common misperceptions that people have, including Christians, is we don't believe deep down that people are desperately wicked apart from Christ. We have this idea that people are generally good and these kids are innocent. But that's fundamentally in opposition with God's revelation of mankind. The heart is deceptive and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So this in reality was deeper and vaster than anything we can fully know. This was God's judgment of evil. Also, this was not genocide because the command was to drive them out. And only if the Canaanites refused was it to be done forcefully and quickly. What many people forget is that Sodom and Gomorrah were Canaanite cities. And this is, of course, years and years before Joshua and Judges. But even then, you can see the evil that was permeating and corrupting the core of these communities. Remember how that conversation went in Genesis? If there were 50, would God spare it? Yes. What about 40? What about 30? What about 10? Is there 10 righteous people? And the answer was no. The only righteous people, in quote, were Lot and his family, who were still hesitant to go and didn't want to go. And I want to park right here for a minute because this raises another important question. What about the kids? And I've heard the progressive Christians talk about this passage and say something to the effect of, all right, well, yeah, these people were super duper evil and they sacrificed children and all. So we just have to kill their children. And I want to give some time to this because that is a legitimate concern. How does God then give the Israelites the right to slaughter these same children? And it's probably the most difficult and heavy thing about this entire subject. What about the kids? 
I can see them executing the evil parents who molested their kids and then sacrificed their kids to Molech, but why were they commanded by God to execute the kids too? It's a great question, and my answer is twofold. But before I directly answer it, I need to take a step back with you. We can't gloss over the evil perversion of these people by just saying, oh, they were just so bad. Yeah, whatever. People are always bad. I'm not going to go into it today, but if you want to be disgusted, just go read Leviticus 18. It describes these people. Sexually debased in the worst imaginable ways. And if that's not enough for you, we have multiple historical sources from outside of the Bible that reveal in their own words how vile and disgusting their society was. It was utterly corrupt. It was utterly perverted. It was swept away in occult worship. Rape, incest, bestiality. Not only was this a society filled with trans adults, molestation of children, but Genesis 6 tells us that the Nephilim were on the earth in the days of Noah and also afterward. And that's a key phrase that often gets overlooked. The Nephilim, the demonic offspring, transhumans, came back after the flood through the occult practices that these societies were steeped in. And this is opening up a whole other can of worms, I know. But we know that David was still fighting giants. And the fallen angels that had offspring with the daughters of men produced a transhuman hybrid race, the mighty men of renown, as Genesis 6 calls them. And this is an assumption on my end. It's not crystal clear in the Bible, so feel free to disagree with me on this. But what I deduct from this is that the gene pool was corrupted with the occult. And another side issue here was God cleansing the gene pool. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that. Okay, that's my deduction. But what's not up for debate is that these people were pure evil and there was nothing redeemable about them. So with that said, what about the kids? Why do they have to suffer because of their parents? And here's what I'll say. God knows more than we do. We have to approach this with humility. But let's just play this out. God told them, if you don't drive out every man, woman, and child, they will corrupt and pervert you, which is what happened. But what do we know about kids? People who have adopted kids will tell you universally, kids always have a desire to eventually learn about their lineage and their history, right? Kids have this innate desire to know where they came from. And I have heard plenty of stories, you probably have too, of people who adopted kids and no matter what they do, those kids have a curiosity to know what their parents believed. So it's incredibly naive to think these kids wouldn't want to go back and explore their debased, demonic, corrupt culture. Also, practically speaking, what if you adopted the child of the parent that you executed? You better sleep with one eye open, right? And you can see this with foster families, and it's heartbreaking, but even kids who are molested and abused, they want to be with their mom or dad. These kids in this society, 
It's so sad, but they were exposed to disgusting and vile practices from their earliest memories onward. And God knows this about human nature. So God's ways are higher than ours, and he knew this was best. It's better to end their life humanely and quickly rather than have them starve to death or die abandoned in the wilds or continue on with the corruption that they know. This is a heavy topic, but this is a result of the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. And sin is a serious thing. It's nothing to play around with. And your actions affect your kids to the third and fourth generation as scripture teaches. So, what are the practical implications for you today? First of all, understand what the Bible is. We gotta talk about this. This issue highlights the importance of the Orthodox Christian view of God's revelation. And really, all branches of the institutional church, whether it's Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, they all historically agree that the Bible is entirely the revelation of God's will. That doesn't mean that everything you read in the Bible is God's will. There are many portions that highlight man's depravity, but when you look at the macro view of the Bible, it's showing you God's character and God's plan of salvation to restore mankind into relationship with him. So if you take something from the Bible like so-called holy war, in quote, that you don't understand, and then you throw out the authority and the inerrancy of God's word because it doesn't jive with you, well, then you either, number one, open yourself up to be the ultimate authority able to receive divine revelation, which is a terrifying thought that has led to literal wars, or number two, you don't have any check or reasonable check on someone creating a holy war for their own desires. If we don't have an authoritative truth source outside of ourselves that reveals the will of our sovereign creator, we end up with the exact thing judges ends with everyone doing what is right in their own eyes and that always always ends in violence and bloodshed the bible reveals god's will our character apart from christ and god's love for us it's a roadmap it's a love letter it's the grand narrative of the reason for life on this earth why we are here, and for what purpose. It's our good God and our Creator's glory. So placing stories like this in the meta-narrative is very valuable to understanding humanity and your place in God's story. Number two, read the Bible with humility. I've mentioned this a few times already, but it's way too easy for contemporary people to feel condescending toward or offended by the actions of many of those whose stories are related in the book of Judges. God's command to conquer Canaan is hard enough, but in addition, Judges recounts the good guys acting in very poor form many times. But let's not assume that if we had been born in this ancient era, we would have been so much more enlightened. I always find it amusing that the same people who go along with literally everything they hear 
from the establishment media hook, line, and sinker. They just repeat the same talking points ad nauseum. Those people are the same people that think they are the resistance. Now, you're just a pawn of the empire. See, in their conceit, they think that they would stand up to Hitler. And it really would be laughable if it wasn't so sad. The people who stand up to Big Pharma and fight for the lives of the unborn and see through the spin now, those are the types of people who said no when everyone else shrugged their shoulders and turned a blind eye, when their society was pressuring them to go along with the current thing of the corrupt regime. And as we read with humility, we should also be aware that we have the advantage now of living in a society deeply influenced by the Ten Commandments and other biblical influences that have greatly influenced our civilization. Actually read the founders. and Don't just listen to what other people say about them. Read them and you will see that these men were moral from their Judeo-Christian ethics and they told us our society will crumble when the morality crumbles. That's unfortunately happening right now. But for a long time, we have coasted on the sacrifices and the biblical principles of equality, not equity, and the principle of like free speech that set up our society to be a republic of free market capitalism that rewards hard work. So we do still have a good. And when we read of these ancient men and women, we need to humbly remember that we live in a different time and context, but that our own inner natures and our hearts are not fundamentally better than theirs were. Their flaws may be different. Their defects at times more obviously egregious than ours, but they flow from the same rebellious heart as ours. We must be willing to look for ways in which we are like the people in the narrative and not pander to our pride by focusing on all the ways that we are unlike or better than them. Also, here's a big one. Place your story into God's story. This is what I want to end with. I gave you a snippet of the late Rachel Held Evans talk about judges. And if you haven't listened to her, do yourself a favor and just don't. <laughs> Unless you want to analyze a false teacher. She was very destructive to a lot of people's faith. But if you listen to false teachers like her, what you're going to hear is a lot of self, a lot of inserting their feelings and perspectives into scripture, rather than just asking, what does the text say? And then how should I understand this in light of the entire message of scripture? With false teachers, you always get a heavy dose of, I don't like where this is going, so there must be something wrong with it. And what you never hear from people like that is there must be something wrong with the way I understand it. There must be limitations on my end. So when I say place your story into God's story, I'm not saying that you need to check your brain at the door. I'm not saying you need to ignore your feelings. But I am saying if your entire view of the Bible revolves around you inserting your opinions and your problems with the text, then you might want to step back and really ask yourself, who do I think I am? We are to approach the Bible by looking for the character of God, 
we should also look to see what the fallen condition focus is. What does this reveal about the sinful heart of man? God's story starts with creation, and it was good. Then we had the fall of man. The curse of sin destroys and corrupts everything. But that's not the end. Redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross is the central point of all of history. And then we have progressive sanctification where we all grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ by abiding in him and ultimately consummation where we see him face to face in our glorified bodies and we come full circle to walk with God in fellowship in the new earth. So where does this story fit in with that meta-narrative? And where do you fit your micro-life into that macro view of God's story of Revelation? When we do that, we don't just learn to identify the historical contextual elements that make stories like this make sense and and actually tightly fit into real-world problems that we're dealing with right now, but we understand things that are in this fallen world throughout history, like the Crusades. There were plenty of ungodly men who fought in the Crusades for their king, and they had the label Christian, but they weren't Christians. That's what happens this side of eternity. They were also taking back land that had already been confiscated by the Islamic sword violently. That was a dark time in human history, and it was far deeper than simply Christians doing atrocities. So next time someone goes off on judges or on the Crusades or anything like that, just know where is that coming from? It's coming from the same spirit that we see in the book of Judges. It's coming from a rebellious heart that doesn't want to follow authority. Know that people twist the truth to make their own point. The Crusaders saved millions of people from living under a dominant, domineering Muslim regime that would have devoured them. Were they perfectly lily-white angels? Of course not. But there's much more to it than you're going to hear from a 60-minute lecture from a professor who deep down hates God. God's word gives you wisdom. And God primarily speaks to you through his word understand the treasure and the beauty of the Bible. Read it with humility and place your story into God's overarching story. That's all I have for right now. If you enjoyed this podcast and you think it would be helpful for someone else, please share it with them. I will see you on Sunday and we'll be in Judges chapters 1 and 2. You are loved. There's an arrogance instead of a humility when it comes to approaching scripture. Because there's an arrogance, uh, the arrogance is if I don't understand it, then that means it's not understandable. Mm. Instead of saying, let me take a look here just for a minute and, and trust the God that this is his word. And I'm going to try and figure out what's going on here. A friend of mine put it, when I run into a passage of scripture that troubles me, I ask, what's wrong with me? that I am troubled by what the Lord is saying. Mm. And I think that that is a very important 
that we come to the scripture, we start off with humility instead of starting off with, well, if I don't understand it, it's not understandable. That's a very, very arrogant position. And-